Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing. Luke chapter 5 is where we're at, if you want to click or flip to that page. Chapters 1 and 2, John the Baptist and Jesus get born. Chapter 3, Jesus identifies with humanity through baptism. (laughs) Then Luke gives the genealogy of Jesus, which identifies with humanity in birth. And then in chapter 4, he identifies with humanity in temptation. And chapter 4 is a set of stories showing both demonic and human efforts to get Jesus off his ministry. And to just get him off his game. He doesn't. The the ministry is not derailed. And he continues to preach in the synagogues every week. To do miracles and to offer salvation to the poor. And to those that are needy. So you see Jesus staying the course in his preaching ministry. um, And and, and it's just throughout that whole chapter. And he says in verse 43 at the end of 4. I must preach the kingdom of God. And Matthew really emphasizes the kingdom of God, but even Luke uses that language. Um, But even though he's making very different emphasis, Luke 4.44, and he preached in the synagogues of Galilee. Verse 15, 16, 28, 33, 43, 44, he's preaching in synagogues over and over and over again. And as with Luke, what Luke does emphasize is how public this all was. Like, everyone knew Jesus' teaching. Everybody knew the things that he taught. It wasn't private. It wasn't quiet. No other major world religion has a founder that's as public as Jesus was in his ministry. Nothing's in secret. Nothing's in a closet. Nothing's hidden. We don't have to take even Jesus' word for it. In fact, the four Gospels are the people who witnessed it, not the person himself. So it's very interesting how we see this is that Jesus doesn't purposefully draw attention to himself, but attention is garnered and he is seen by people. So when we pick up in chapter five, you know, it gives a little different tense of when he starts calling the disciples, they're not being called out of a vacuum. I remember being a kid, just being amazed, like, man, if a stranger walked up to me and said, follow me, I don't think I'd quit my job at Bonanza and go follow some stranger. And I think with Luke, you get a little bit of context, like Jesus isn't a stranger to anyone in this region. He's a well-known teacher, rabbi, miracle-working um, preacher of the good news of the kingdom of God. So when he starts to call disciples, it's like a rabbi calling disciples. I'm calling people to teach them how to do what I do. And so that's a a really unique invitation. So in verse 1, it says, so it was. That was the whole setup. This is the context that this is in. So it was, Jesus teaching in all the synagogues, as the multitude pressed about him to hear the word of God, that he stood by the lake of Gennesaret. And he saw two boats standing in the lake, but fishermen had gone from them and were washing their nets. And then he got into one of the boats. Hey, what are you doing in my boat? Which was Simon's. And he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and he taught the multitudes from the boat. So Jesus' popularity is growing. There's enough people showing up that aren't fitting in synagogues, apparently, because he's meeting more and more outside. We know from the past chapters there are some that accept what he says. There are some that are simply amazed by what he says, and there are some that reject what he says. 
And that hasn't changed a bit. The multitude presses. The Greek there is to place upon or to lay upon. So as Jesus builds this ministry, there's an urgency to the people. And the word that's used there for the pressing is as you put like heaping coals upon something. It gets used again and in, 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 in translated that way. But it's like, if you want to put pressure on something, put some hot coals on it and see what happens. And the multitude is pressing into Jesus like that. They're bringing, yeah, that was supposed to be an object lesson. Um, they're, they're bringing hurt, sickness, injury. They have needs. And when you start bringing joy to people around you, you're going to find they start coming to you when they have needs. They, there's, there's gaps in their life and they see that you don't have the same gaps, there's going to be a draw or a magnetism. But the numbers grow around Jesus in part because these people have pressing needs and they press upon Jesus in doing that. So Jesus calls on others to support the ministry. I think this is interesting. If the God of the universe incarnate needs to call disciples to help with the ministry, so do we. We don't do ministry alone. It's not a spearhead thing. And, and in that sense, and if you're doing ministry and, and there is no pressing upon you, it's probably not ministry. It's probably just activity that makes you feel good. But this idea that there's so many people that need Jesus and he steps into these boats and he asks them to set up. I like that he asks them to push out after he gets in the boat. Like, and I don't think he's presuming upon Simon. I think Simon's somebody that's there, but they're washing their nets, which means Simon is still working. When he does, when he gets this call. So Gennesaret is another word for Sea of Galilee. If you're in the Latin, it's the Sea of Tiberias. Depends on what language you're speaking. He sits down and he teaches the multitude from the boat. And the word sit down there is the same as when you sit down in a synagogue to teach. So he's literally using the boat as the seat of um, teaching that he would normally have in a synagogue. So it's, it's welcoming, it's to say that we're about to teach and to do things, but he sits down in a guy named Simon's boat. This is Simon, who Jesus will later call Peter, Simon Peter. And it's likely a detail that Simon remembered. Jesus used my boat. It was a source of pride. Um, and Jesus, um, I think he brings this situation up in part because he wants to bless Simon. And he wants to bring him close. But he uses Simon's boats. This means Simon owns boats, by the way. This makes him middle class in the ancient world. He's not a broke guy. Uh, we know that his mother-in-law got healed. So he's also a guy that has multi-generational living in his house. We know from other texts that Andrew lived with them, which means he's putting up his brother and his wife and his mother-in-law. So Peter's doing okay in the fishing business. The Chosen has him as like an in-debt guy that's kind of scrapping along, that's not necessarily the case. Um, in this period of time, yes, small business people were heavily taxed by the Romans, but Peter was doing well enough to have other people living in his house with him. So he was a provider, he was working, he was doing that, and Jesus is using his boat because he has a boat. So it's not, I think, sometimes we get funny about ownership in Christianity. But it's, when we look at the scripture, Jesus calls people, we're going to see Matthew later in the chapter, that have things sometimes, and then those things get used for the ministry. And maybe God blesses some people because they'll be responsible stewards with those things so that they can get used for the ministry. The point is, are you living for it or not living for it, which we'll get to in the chapter 2. Verse 4, when he had stopped speaking... He said to Simon, launch out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch, which implies that if he's in the boat and he's set offshore, that Simon's in the boat with him. Like, no, you're not going to just ride off in my boat. 
right? I'll give you a ride. Thank you. So he, he sets him out and, and set your nets for a catch. Now, remember in the previous verse, they had just got done washing those nets. Now think about this. If you've worked a long night, which is when they would fish, because that's when the fish were out, and you just got done cleaning up, putting away all the tools, pack, folding up the nets, washing them and cleaning them, and then guys, some guys have to throw them back out. Like that's really inconvenient. Hmm. And I don't know if you've ever kind of worked in a shop and you get all done and everything's put away and then somebody comes out and says, I want to, can we use the shop some more? And you're like, I just cleaned everything up. So part of this throwing your nets out thing, I, I'm thinking Jesus is just messing with Simon here. Verse five, but Simon answered and said to him, master, we've toiled all night and caught nothing. I don't think that's resisting Jesus. I think he's like, we just got done working all night. Nevertheless, at your word, I will let down the net. This is a guy, hasn't been called yet, but he's following Jesus and obeying Jesus, even though he's not one of the disciples at this moment. And I think that's really something for all of us to hear. We all can follow Jesus. And that ministry is going to look different for different people. But he, he stops speaking. There's no indication Jesus has left the boat. And Luke has shown in this ministry of teaching that there is a transition here going on. Jesus is building something with all of this teaching. And this is the first lesson in ministry for his followers. It's an image of fishing. And, and, and he says, Master, we've toiled all night. Peter's a pro fisherman. Let's not miss that point. This is what he does for a living. It would be really easy for Peter to say, look, carpenter, you don't know fishing like I do. And I'm not going to just throw my nets in the water because a carpenter said to throw nets in the water. You're even a great Bible teacher. I'll give you that. But this is my business. This is what I know how to do. And, and the fact that Peter doesn't do that makes Peter truly unique amongst humans. And I think this is one of the reasons Jesus had a heart for him and brought him into service. Because he doesn't take his expertise into the kingdom of God. And tons of people do this. Well, it, I know how to do this, 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 and this. And then they show up to a ministry saying, I know how to do all these things. And it's like, okay, but do you know how to love other people in the congregation? Why don't you just come get to know us for a while? Some of you have heard me say that. But there's this idea that Peter's just able to put his expertise to the side and let Jesus lead. And you wonder if Simon hadn't been fishing all night, if he would appreciate what's about to happen as much. In fact, if he was out fishing all night and caught some fish, and then Jesus said, throw in your net, and he caught some fish, it wouldn't even be a miracle, would it? It would just be more fishing. So part of that toiling all night and not seeing anything could actually be part of this miracle too, that a professional fisherman can fish all night and not catch anything. And then you think, maybe it's an act of God that I didn't catch anything because he wants me to see what a real harvest looks like. And you do that. Like if I go out fishing with Dan ever, I expect to catch fish because he knows where they are. He knows where to throw it on the line. And if we don't catch fish, there's a huge disappointment in that, which has happened to Dan on occasion. You know, he'll only catch five or six fish or something. I mean, think of Peter like that. This is what he does for a living all the time. And he's toiled all night. Fishing was you'd throw this big heavy net out and then you'd pull it back in hoping you caught fish. This was exhausting labor. Your muscles would be sore. They would harden over time, I suppose. The word master here is the word for boss or commander. And at some level, this could be the first occasion in history where somebody says, okay, boss. You know, and that's how he's treating, that's the term he uses for Jesus there. Um, some people, and again, this, and I don't want to get confused, to say we worked all night fishing, that wasn't to avoid Roman taxes. 
it's because the fishing was easier for them at night. It was cooler weather. So throwing those nets and bringing them back in. It was also feeding time for Galilean fish. So to know that they're out there, it's not that they're trying to be sneaky fishing at night or something like that. It was the best hours to get fish. And if you want to fish and you don't want to work on Sabbath, Sabbath starts when the sun comes up. So you're working all the time you can right up until sun comes up. So it could be that they'd been toiling all night. Sun comes up. This is the Sabbath. Jesus is teaching now like he has been through the last couple chapters. And they're trying to get in everything they can before that so that their work is done and their gear is stowed before Sabbath. Throwing out the nets would be breaking Sabbath. And we'll see that that becomes an issue with the Pharisees too. So Simon Peter is resistant, maybe even grudging, but he acts anyways, which is just another indication that Jesus can use us when we act and we take our feelings and we put them to the side. Our actions matter more. Nevertheless, at your word, and I think for humans, this is the great phrase of obedience. Whatever you say, God, you said it, I'll do it. Doesn't make sense to me, but okay. So Peter gives this kind of great proclamation of faith. Of what At your word. My way didn't get any fish. I'm willing to try your way. Even if I don't know if there'll be a lot of fish there, I'll at least try it your way. And I think sometimes when we go through the Bible, we run into a lot of things where, where, where people like come at the Bible like whether or not they believe it. And as Christians, I don't know if that should be our tone. Our, our tone shouldn't be, I'm going to read the Bible and then decide if I approve of what the Bible says or not. Like, who are we to do that? Instead, we approach the Bible and it says one thing and, and our instinct should be, I'm going to try that thing the Bible says and I'm going to give it a whirl. Whatever you say, boss, if you say it, I'll do it. This at your word is the, is the phrase that moves empires, not just fish. Like Elijah uses this phrase. Psalm 119, David uses this phrase. Simon Peter uses this phrase. This puts him in really good company. At your word, Lord, whatever you say. Not my will, but yours be done is what Jesus himself says in Gethsemane. I'll do it your way. It doesn't make sense. I don't want to do it, but I can toil on my own all I want, or I can simply do it God's way. And I'm putting a lot of this commentary in here because you guys know what's about to happen. You've all heard this story before. You can water by foot or you can water by heaven. You can do it your way and it's a ton of work, a ton of effort, and you probably don't get a lot of fruit from it. Or you can wait on God, which is a consistent theme in the, word of, in, in the Bible, that we wait on God doing what he's told us to do and then watch the fruit come and see what happens. His expertise tells him one thing, his flesh, but his master tells him another thing, his spirit. And he obeys the spirit. He does it. That's love in action. And then here's the miracle, verse 6. And when they had done this, they caught a great number of fish. And their net was breaking. Nets designed to hold fish were starting to snap. So they signaled to their partners in the other, in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both with both the boats so that they began to sink boats designed for fishing began to sink when simon peter saw it he fell down at jesus's knees saying depart from me for i'm a sinful man O lord for he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish and what they had taken and so also were james and john the sons of zebedee who were partners with simon so again the even though he was obedient he knew that his heart doubted. This is why Simon didn't sin by throwing in the nets. He sinned because in his heart, he didn't believe it was going to do anything. 
I was just going to do it out of obedience, but I really doubt you, Lord. And so when he's confessing, you know, it, 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 again, it, he probably had a bad attitude about it. He's probably scoffing God when he did it. He probably just knew that as a fisherman, he had maybe gambled too much, swore too much, and um, been, you know, begrudging the fact that his brother was still living in his house. So he's just looking at the entirety of his heart and the bitterness and the hardness that was there, just saying, Jesus, I'm sinful. I don't even deserve to be close to you. Why am I even here? Maybe it's because he was fishing and cleaning those nets a little past sunrise, breaking the Sabbath, right? But he just knows he's not a perfect guy. He's not. A, 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 he doesn't have a halo around his head, right? He doesn't wear robes and hold his hands like little pictures we see in the Renaissance. That's not Peter. Peter's a sinful man on his knees. It says he caught a great number of fish in the Greek. That's polyplethos, or where we get the word plethora. It was a plethora of fish, more than we can count. And it can't be understated when you use that kind of a Greek term. It was so many fish. This is where I've picked on the chosen twice today. This is where the chosen has this image of the fish in the nets. And it's really more than the nets can handle. They do a very good job of televising this haul when it comes in. However, they have them kind of on the shore. And it says they were out in deep water when this happened. And the boats were starting to sink. It's probably best at that point... Um, and what's going on here that we, we can try, and I want to just make this point again, we can try so hard in the ministry. Sam can go over to the college and he can try so hard and just get nothing. But if we pray and it's done in the spirit and we're honoring God's calling, he could really have a bounty. But we're going to throw the nets in before we know if there's a bounty there or not. And that's an important element to how we live our lives. It's probably best if we're working really hard and we get nothing out of it, it's best to clean up the nets and put them away and pull the boat into shore and try to find Jesus again. And I think sometimes as a church, they'll continue to do dead ministries even after they don't bear fruit anymore. And then they look around and they wonder why the Holy Spirit isn't there. It's like, well, because you never stopped. And Peter had to, he was cleaning the nets. He stopped. He put stuff away. He was giving up on his own efforts. Then he's ready to find God's calling in his life because he stopped doing it on his own. So leading in the guiding of the Holy Spirit's where we see results just like Peter. And we can keep doing everything or we can do it in such a way that the boat starts to sink. The nets start to break. We got to call our friends to help with the work because there's too many people showing up. And I love this. We've had weekends where we've had 30, 40 people in this house or at the coffee shop. And then suddenly Steph's like, I don't know if I can cook all the food for everybody. And you're right. It's too much. The nuts start to break. But isn't that the problem we want in the church? And then you start calling more people out. And Jesus does that too. He calls people out. He uses their boats. He adds them to the ministry. And so in verse 7, when it says they signaled their partners, um, they're asking for help too. And we see a model of Jesus asking for help, but then Simon Peter asking for help. Moses couldn't do it alone. He, God had Aaron go with him. And, and Elijah in 1 Kings 19 says, I alone am left, God, I'm the only one. Yet I've, and God says, I've reserved 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal. And every mouth has not kissed him. So he departed from there and he found Elisha. God always gives us friends and partnerships 
and allies when it comes to the ministry. Working with others is what God has taught us, and it's what he's modeled for us. So be wary of things where you just have too much. Here's another boat breaking. When our family went out to Italy a few years ago, we were called out to Italy because their nets were breaking. Their boats were flooding. And they're like, we just need help. We got people that want to learn to do the ministry. We got, they had groups of people meeting in small towns in Northern Italy, just listening to the, the audio of the teaching every week, begging them to send a pastor so they could have a real human be their pastor. Well, if we got to send out these pastors, man, we don't have that many pastors. Our nets are breaking. We got to start a Bible college. We got to train people and send them out. So they're trying to start a Bible college. God's like, great, here's a building. Here's city codes being passed. Here's all this stuff. And now they're like, well, now we got to fix up this building. So they sent out an all call to the Calvary Network. Like, we need help. We got such bounty here. We can't do it on our own. So people came from all over the world. We got to meet some awesome people that were coming from all over the world to help these people build their Bible college so they could send pastors out. And while they're there, they were like recruiting us. They're like, Grant, you want to stay and be a pastor? Like, we need pastors. The, the boats are sinking. And in the ministry, sometimes our tendency is to do everything ourselves to the point where we burn out. We can't do it anymore. And you get people that are committed to the Lord and they work hard for the Lord and then you get the people pressing on them and they just can't handle the load anymore. Thankfully, God gives us weeks that are fairly light weeks, you know, but other weeks are, it's heavy. And you're like, man, we need some help with this. And that pastor just rightly called in help and got help. And then within a summer had fixed up 100,000 square feet. We can't even fix up 400 square feet, but they're just getting it all done because they got people coming from all over the world to help them out. There's no scarcity in God's kingdom. If he calls us to things, he'll help us meet those needs, and he'll do it. So Jesus sends out disciples. He sends them in twos with clear instructions, Matthew 6, 7. And he called the 12 to himself. He began to send them out two by two, and he gave them power over unclean spirits. When God calls us to ministry, he actually gives us the ability to do the ministry. Peter's statement is a great statement of repenting and following Jesus. It's a salvation prayer. Depart from me. For I am a sinful man, O Lord. Now, Peter had seen his mother-in-law get healed, right? He'd seen Jesus. He's out there here in the sermon. Um, but Simon doesn't know medicine in the same way he knows fishing. Like the healing of his mother-in-law didn't get him to say this. It didn't get him to fall to his knees. But when Jesus spoke into his life through a language he understood... And the fishing is the thing that he knew well, and Jesus speaks in a way that it actually touches him. He knows he's being called. And I think I, comparing this to the mother-in-law getting healed, Simon's done everything he could do in his own strength, but with his mother-in-law, there was nothing he knew how to do. Right? She was healed to help with the ministry. And, Jesus, and, and Peter, obviously, when it comes to fishing, has exercised everything he can do. Surrender comes when you know you're beat in your own territory. When you know that you've gotten everything you can do on your own strength, you've gone as far as you can go on your own strength, or even worse, you know that on your own strength, you're on a path of destruction. You got temptations, you got things in your heart where you know, if I keep going down this road, I'm going to wreck myself and everybody around me, right? And that's, I think, exactly where God is able to come into people's lives and say, I got a different plan for you. I got a different direction. Maybe we can take you and, and be a blessing and not anything else. Peter's saying depart from me is a distinctly Jewish idea. The idea that a sinner would be in the presence of God is not okay under the law. In fact, all sinners have to be outside of the tabernacle. They're un, it's called unclean. 
and they're not supposed to be there. If you get leprosy, you're supposed to be outside the city gates. You're not even close. So when he says, depart from me, he's ascribing to Jesus a holiness that he knows he doesn't have. He hasn't been cleansed. He says, I'm a sinful man. That recognition of knowing that you're living for yourself. And it, then he falls down. He's just got nothing left. And then the word sinful there is hamartalos. That means devoted to sin, laced with sin, defined by sin, preeminently a sinful thing. It's a really interesting word. Usually for, for sinful, they use a word that means miss the mark. But that's not the word he uses for sinful here. The one he uses right here is completely saturated. I have sin everywhere in me, and I can't get rid of it. The root word here for this word is the other one, which is missing the mark. It's not measuring up to the holiness of God. Can you imagine a bunch of fish is what caused this to happen in Peter's heart? He just realizes, man, I've been fishing my whole life. I don't I have no idea what just happened there. He says, oh Lord, in the Greek that's Kyrios. Retaining and recognizing Jesus isn't just our master. It's a different word than the one he used before. Before he just said, okay, boss, but now he calls him Kyrios, okay, Lord, oh, Lord. And the idea of boss is somebody you work for, but the idea of Lord is somebody who has authority over you and has dominion. So <laughs> do we remember that point in our life when we just realized God's in control and we're not? But how quickly in the flesh we forget that? But we can see in the spirit that we can't earn God's grace. We're, we're so far beyond that. We can't work hard for our boss and earn his favor. But we can be a servant of our Lord who has dominion over us from the start. That shift in terms is an interesting thing that's going on there. No matter how much we do achieve, earn, or gather, no matter how many nets we throw out, it doesn't mean anything because when it comes to the light of God's grace, we're just bankrupt. We got nothing to give. And he comes to that realization, he falls to his need, he throws it there, and this is how God reacts to that kind of surrender. And Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So when they had brought their boats to land, they forsook all and they followed him. Jesus meets them where they live. By the way, Jesus meets him while he's doing his profession or right after it. Nothing wrong with this work in the job until God calls you into a something or some kind of activity. He shows them what grace looks like in their own language. So catching a lot of fish to a fisherman is like speaking in tongues to somebody who speaks a different language. He gives him what he shows and reveals himself to Peter before he asks anything of Peter. I think that's an interesting ordering of things. And he uses Peter's experience to call on him. They were astonished is the word that's there. And in their astonishment, he calls them into something more. I think this is great. They were there to hear Jesus teach, but then they left being a servant of the Lord. It's one thing to come to church to hear the Bible. It's another thing to have the Lord speak to your heart and have you move forward decidedly on a ministry. And God loves both of those behaviors. I don't, if, if Peter never showed up to hear the word get taught, he wouldn't have been here for this thing. He'd have been using James and John's boats. We would never have heard of Simon Peter. But he's showing up to hear the word get taught by Jesus. And that astonishment translates into an experience that compares to the mundane life. And in that experience, he can move forward in faith to do a ministry. Jesus loved kids, but he calls adults to do work for him. He called the kids to just get taught to. 
But there is a point where you've just consumed so much, now it's time to go out and do what God's called you to do. Peter talks about this in terms of having milk for children or having the full diet of the Word of God for adults. And there's just a growth thing that happens there. The first words out of Jesus' mouth are, don't be afraid. Do you remember that voice? God said to you, don't be afraid. It's going to be okay. You're forgiven. It's over. That stuff you did, that the shame that you had, the wasted years you feel bad about, and God just says, don't be afraid. You haven't let God down. You just need to hear his call. You need to stop trying and you need to start serving. So the power of God does cause fear. That's a good natural human reaction. This is amazing power when you start to realize it's all real. We got brothers and sisters that are still just like in awe of God's power. Like he made everything. He controls all of it. He has dominion over absolutely everything. And the way he shows that to us is very different person to person. Jesus has given Peter a glimpse that causes Peter to have fear in this moment. Or he wouldn't say, don't be afraid. Peter's scared. What do I do in the face of holiness when I'm not holy? What happens next? What if John thinks I'm nuts? Well, John saw the fish, so clearly, like, Peter probably hasn't fallen on his face and bowed to anybody. I know, you guys know fishermen. You know kind of that kind of worker. This, he's a hard guy. And for him to do this, you know, he might be thinking, what will my wife say? Like, how's my wife going to react to the fact that I'm going to go follow Jesus right now? And he's got a business to run and people to provide for, people living in his house that he's responsible for. Likely in that fear, he's thinking, who is this Jesus? And the power that's so beyond him and so immense actually calls him into service to it. I just want to serve that thing which is greater than me. Peter finally realizes he's not the one that knows how to catch fish. So from now on is what Jesus says. Jesus delineates the old from the new. And God does this. Isn't this a great message to hear this? When God just says, you know what? From here forward, that's what I'm looking at now. From now on. Admitting sin and following Jesus is the thing that has God then turn to you and say, okay, what's next? How are you going to act tomorrow? Are you going to put away that old stuff that didn't get you anything? And move towards something new. And then it says, now you will catch men. So again, from now on, now you will catch men. This is what happens next. Your old life was catching fish. Your new life is to go after humans. And he calls these men to do exactly what he's been doing. Jesus doesn't call us to do anything that he didn't do before us. He's been calling men. He's been in the synagogues teaching the word. He's been instructing people to come to the kingdom of God. And that's all he's ever asked us to do is the same thing. And to act in the same way. It's the first and the greatest calling is to preach the good news to all nations. So when they had brought their boats to land. So imagine their boats are about to sink and they still got to row these things to land. Think of this. Physical exertion they have to kick out after God says this to them and invites them. You're going to be fishers of men, but first let's bring these fish to shore. You're right. It's like there's work to be done. And that harvest doesn't turn into cash until it all gets brought in, gets taken there. All the crowds that were listening to him teach on the shore see this happen. They watch these boats come in, you know, and I imagine they had some help when they got to shore. But there's this idea that 
God amazes, but in that amazement, he's providing here too. Fish are money. He filled their boats with enough money to take care of their families while they go do ministry. And so there's, there's an opportunity, and then God provides the opening for it. Prosperity gospel stuff will say, see, if you follow God, he'll fill up your coffers. And that, I think that totally misses the point of what this is. Jesus is calling a Peter who's responsible for a family, a mother-in-law, his brother, and he's calling him in to follow him as a student and a rabbi. That means his income is going to get hurt. And God then fulfills that need before Peter has to serve in that kind of way. He's got other people he's going to call this chapter, and that's not as big of an issue, and he doesn't bring them boatloads of fish either. So he does this in very different ways. In fact, if he does this for Peter and he doesn't do anything for Matthew, that means that for some people he calls, he fills up the boats. But in the very same chapter, other people he calls, there's, in fact, Peter throws a party and spends a bunch of his money and loses money. So that's like not very prosperity gospel at all. What the main point that we should take is, I think, balanced Christians is God treats everybody differently and he provides for the ministry you need to partake in. And he provides physically, emotionally, spiritually, in all the ways he needs to. You will have what you need to do what he's called you to do. So they forsook all and they followed them. I was, I've always been confused by this. Again, a total stranger walks up, says, follow me, and they just leave everything and go do it. The word forsook there, aphiami, is to leave or go or to go, to go and follow something. So they went and they went with everything, and they followed him in everything. So it's not a justification to abandon your family and friends. In the 1700s and 1800s, a lot of like Scottish missionaries left their families behind to go teach the gospel in other parts of the world. And they were heralded as heroes. And I read those stories, and I'm like, they just abandoned their families. But notice in the passage, read it carefully, they brought the boats, they brought the boats to shore, they put things away, Right? And that comes before they forsake all. So they actually took care of things and handled things before they followed Jesus. Where with Matthew, he just leaves the booth and he's gone, right? So there's differences between how he calls people. Peter has responsibilities, verse 11, when they had brought their boats to land, then they went and followed Jesus. They took care of things first. They battened up the hatches, they washed the nets, they put everything away. They're not being foolish or irresponsible in following Jesus. And we never see someone having to be irresponsible in order to follow God. In fact, the opposite is true. We see lots of servants of God say, well, what about this? And God says, I've taken care of that. And so then you know where you're supposed to be. So this is reasonable following. On the other hand, you could take what I just said and take that out of context. Well, that means I never do anything risky for Jesus because God will always have it be, make sense to me. Well, that's a lie too. That's going way too far the other direction. God sometimes calls people to do things that don't make sense to them. Moses, Gideon, Peter, right? And so there is this degree to where like I think the idea of God saying to us, be responsible, and then saying, don't be responsible and do this ridiculous thing for me, that seems inconsistent. But when God says, be responsible with these things I've given you to be responsible for, and then he says, I want you to do this thing which doesn't make sense to you, but the responsible thing is to follow the Lord in doing that. And that means we have to use judgment. And I think that's why people go to the extremes on this story. They go one way or the other because they don't want to use judgment. Judgment's scary. 
They don't want to discern a situation and go to the Lord and inquire of the Lord and pray and get answers from the Lord because it's so much easier to have a, an on switch and an off switch. And this whole idea of discernment gets to be very scary. I don't think Peter made an irresponsible decision here because he has provision provided for his family. Yet I do think he's being asked to do something that doesn't make a lot of sense to him. But the raw power of God on display is what convinces him this is a reasonable step to take. And he makes it. There's a specific word for following a rabbi. And, and when he says to follow him, they're using that word. He's saying, I want to be your teacher. This doesn't mean leave your wife and abandon her. This means go home to your wife and spend an evening with your wife. And then in the morning, come and follow me as my student, as, as I'm your rabbi. The only problem is Jesus is calling students and he's not a Levite. He's not a rabbi. He's of the tribe of Judah. So this is kind of an interesting thing that would get him in some trouble with the Pharisees because he's acting like a Levite, but he's not a Levite. Well, it gets even worse. Like he calls himself the son of man and he's not the Messiah. You know, he's, they, they're thinking, oh, this can't be the Messiah. So him calling someone to him is of, the way Paul explains this is that Jesus is acting as a priest, but not as a Levite priest from the Mosaic era. He's acting as a priest of the order of Melchizedek, which we don't know what tribe or even if Melchizedek was from a tribe. It's the order of Melchizedek. It's somebody who's committed to serving God and worshiping God according to God's law, but they're not a Levite. So Jesus is acting as of that order of Melchizedek, which predates Moses. Abraham went to Melchizedek as a priest, and there were no tribes in Abraham's time. That was still just a sparkle in his eye. So he's going to apprentice and learn. And the, this idea of following a rabbi had everything to do with a profession change. You're going to quit your job as a fisherman. You're going to take up your job as a follower of Jesus. And that profession change would be a, a discipleship season, and, and you'd have young Levites serving under rabbis until they were ready to teach themselves, and the rabbi said, you're ready to teach. And the rabbi would send them out. Now you're ready to have this appointment. So God never called perfect people. <laughs> Peter's a good example of that. But he does call those people that are in need of discipleship and training. And he invites Peter into a season of training with him that is going to predate Peter becoming a priest of Melchizedek too. And such is with the entire church. We all become servants of Jesus Christ and we serve in a holy priesthood even though we're not Levites. So he starts to establish this here in the chapter. Then you get to verse 12. And it happened when he was in a certain city that beheld a man who was full of leprosy saw Jesus and he fell on his face and implored him saying, Lord, if you're willing, you can make me clean. So this is another version of a surrender prayer, right? Here's a second character. Peter has this set of events, but here's this leper coming up. Leper is um, an image of sin throughout the Old Testament. Um, he says, Lord, he recognizes Jesus as Lord, authority over all and king. And he says, if you are Lord, and he says, if you're willing, we can learn from this too, I think. We always recognize who's, who's in charge but God may or may not be willing to do what we ask him to do. Does that make sense? Right? The leopard just says, if you're willing. And I think this is a great way to pray, especially when you're praying for health situations. Lord, if you're willing, could you heal this? Could you make this right? And sometimes God's willing. Sometimes he's not. So far since Jesus, everybody has had to go through death. So it's not like we avoid death. You know? But if you're willing, we'd like this person to live a little longer. Can you heal them? And sometimes God does, sometimes God doesn't. Um, 
You know, it's interesting because you got Jesus as a healer and the leper knows this. We've seen amazing displays of Jesus healing all kinds of sicknesses. But leprosy stands out in the Bible. It's the only sickness that doesn't heal naturally. Miriam got leprosy, but God healed it. Naaman gets leprosy, but God healed it. So leprosy becomes a thing that only God has been able to heal. Well, here's a leper with faith in Jesus thinking, if you want, I think you could heal this. But he's got lots of evidence of people doing it. If Jesus showed up in town, like one example I heard is like, he could go down to the VA hospital and clean that place out in an afternoon. And that's what Jesus was doing. He was going town to town and just healing hundreds of people. He's putting the doctors out of business. And so you hear he's coming down to, you know, uh, Children's Hospital, and he's just going to, hey, Jesus is coming to Children's Hospital. He's starting on floor one. He healed everybody on floor one. He got on the elevator, got up to floor two, healed everybody on floor two. And you're sitting on floor three thinking, I got an incurable disease. I'm doomed to die. But I'm not even in the hospital. They won't, I'm so filthy, they won't even let me in the building. So the leper has to come to Jesus, Right? And he's, you know, knocking on the window or something. Please, if you're willing, you could heal me too, even though I'm not sitting in the hospital with everybody else. The paralytic story is going to emphasize that even more. But you got this image of sin itself. It's not curable. It's absolutely laced through a person. Leprosy kills the the cells. If you want a super gory um, Google search, you can do images of leprosy. But it, it actually is a form of being dead before you're actually dead. The leprosy will take root in parts of the body, usually the limbs, and it'll kill the tissue, dead. And so hands fall off and and ears fall off and parts of the body go away. It's this lingering death, a creeping death that kills you before your heart stops and your brain stops. It's horrible, but it's just like sin. Sin just kills parts of your heart before you're actually dead. And you can, it's the more you engage in sin, the more you just die inside and you're just walking a dead you're a walking dead person go walk downtown and just see how much life you see in people's faces sin's horrible what's even worse is christians that call themselves believers but they walk around with these death masks on because they're so sour and nasty and mean right that's not life either so you can cast nets all night and feel exhausted or you can be laced with leprosy but you're in the same spot You're done. You got nothing left. And then he put out a hand and he touched him, verse 13, saying, I'm willing, be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him. Visible thing everybody in the audience would be able to see. Actually, the audience would be off for a little bit of a distance because they're going to back away from a leper. And he he charged him to tell nobody, but go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as a testimony to them just as Moses commanded. First of all, Jesus touches him. I, again, you guys have heard the leper story before. The fact that he touches him, he didn't have to do that. We know that. We know from the story of the captain, he can be miles away and still do the healing. But with the leper, he actually touches him. And just like with Peter and the fish, for a leper to get touched by another human, he's meeting this guy right where he's at. That physical touch would have been electric to a leper. I'm thinking he touched him somewhere where he still had feeling. Right, And it's just this thing where he meets him. So he does this to make a point. The reason you don't touch a leper is because it's contagious. The reason you don't touch a leper is the thought that that uncleanness will get into you. But we're not dealing with another human here. We're dealing with the power of God 
filling Jesus Christ so when he touches the leper, it goes the opposite direction. The purity of Jesus invades the leper. And this is part of the image of Luke. The kingdom of God is about taking territory from the enemy. And the Holy Spirit advancing and moving forward, sin has to get away, not the other way around. So instead of Jesus becoming unclean, the leper becomes clean. And that's how Jesus says it. And he said, if you're willing, and Jesus says, I am willing, be cleansed. Two words. Bam. It just happens. Immediately, the leper touched him. I like that he touched him before he healed him. So he touched him when there was leprosy there. The courage of Jesus in the face of this, and again, I talked about doing responsible things and irresponsible things. This is an example of something that the world would say is totally irresponsible. But touching a leper in this situation, showing mercy to someone, is something God's commanded us to do. Right alongside with, you know, taking care of your responsibilities at home. So this idea that what Jesus was supposed to do is yell, unclean, unclean, and go running away to warn others of the contagious, nasty, deadly leper virus. But he doesn't do that at all. Instead, he sees somebody that's hurting and asking for help, and he just says, I'll help you. I, you know what, if I, if I get contagious by this, okay, but I, I think Jesus knew he wasn't going to get contagious by the leprosy, that God was going to use this. It constitutes followers like Simon and now the leper both being willing to follow Jesus is that they had seen something. This idea of being covered in sin or having this leprous image of sin, both of those are sucked out by Jesus and spat off to the side. He charges him. With Peter, he says, follow me. And Peter obeys in following him. But with the leper, he doesn't say, follow me. He charges him to tell nobody. This is a very different thing. Again, going to this idea of God deals with different people in different ways. He calls Peter to follow him. He tells the leper to go tell somebody else or don't tell anybody and go down to the temple. He says to show himself to the priests. This would send the priests into like panic mode. Like honestly, they would have been going through and like, hey, does anybody remember where this is? And some priest that's super smart goes, yeah, there's that chapter in Leviticus 14 that talks about what we do with a leper. It's never been used because we've never seen a leper get healed. Like Miriam got healed before she went down. Naaman got healed out in the river. We as priests have never used this law, but we got to learn it. It's one of those test questions for the A plus students that they've studied this chapter. Totally obscure, weird Leviticus 14, you can go read it. You know, there's white pusses things and hairs and things they need to study and know. After, I think this is interesting, this law that's never been carried out until Jesus, before the healing, they give two birds as a sacrifice, cedar wood, scarlet, and hyssop, elements we see at the crucifixion. And after the healing, they have one lamb, flour, oil, and two doves. Images that are the Lamb of God, the bread, oil is a symbol of spirit, and two doves, again, a symbol of the Holy Spirit. And you've got this symbolic stuff the priests are supposed to recognize that after the healing of this thing, they would have been finding a lamb, a a spotless lamb they'd be looking for. In other words, Jesus is encouraging them to recognize there are things afoot that haven't happened in the history of the Jewish people. So he sends this guy to the priest. Peter, he needs help with these pressing crowds. So he gets a big, strong fisherman to be his bouncer. 
But with the leper, he sends him to the priests. You got a different mission. You go this way. Then verse 15, however, the report went around concerning him all the more. We know from other passages that it's the leper that opens his big mouth. And the great mountains come to, the, the multitudes come together to hear and be healed by him of their infirmities. So Luke in verse 15 kind of summarizes everything in between. Peter's obedient in how he's told to follow Jesus. The leper is disobedient in how he's told to follow Jesus. So slight differences. The disobedience of the leper here, telling everybody, creates a great inconvenience for the ministry. In verse 16, Jesus goes and withdraws himself because so many people are coming now all of a sudden. So instead of like helping the ministry, the leper actually distracts the ministry or causes harm to the ministry because they don't listen. They're not obedient. So great multitudes come. Lots of witnesses are here. Lots of people see it. They're healed by him. It's fulfilling prophecy that he would be a healer, Isaiah 35. That healer is then overwhelmed and he has to withdraw often. So he himself often withdrew into the wilderness and prayed. This is what Jesus did. He often withdrew. It kind of reminds me last chapter where it said it was his custom to, te- to, to be in the synagogue on, on Sabbath. So this idea of getting some alone time, having time for prayer, more ministry, more prayer, more kind of there. I think this becomes part of the ministry. If you're going to do ministry and serve people, that doesn't mean you don't take care of your own mental health. Even Jesus takes time to pray. If you're not connecting to God, you're not much good to anybody else either. You're not a blessing to other people. So sometimes withdrawing from a situation is part of how people do this. Luke 4.42, he tried to withdraw and get away, but the people stopped him. They stayed him, and they tried to keep him. Do you see that? But here he's able to get away. What's the difference? Peter. Peter's the difference. Peter's like, let him have some time. He starts to defend and protect the people that are going to be teaching the word on Sabbath. And the difference between the two of Jesus being able to get away or not being able to get away has to do with these disciples he's called, Peter, James, John. Now he's got some people to help him. If Jesus needs alone time to pray, to be in God's presence, and he's the incarnate form of God, how much more do we as humans in the flesh need to get away and pray and spend time with God? And if we're not doing that, we're not ready to fight any battles for the Lord. So who do we have to say no to to get away? It's the crowds. It's everybody else. Go to verse 17. Now it happened on a certain day as he was teaching that there were Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting by who had come out of every town of Galilee, Judea, and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. So he was teaching. Again, it all starts with the teaching. Jerusalem's now quite a trip. He's got people coming down from Jerusalem. This would be because the priest just saw a leper get healed. That would get the priesthood's attention. They would send a note back to Jerusalem saying, we need you to come. We just saw something here. So that would that would happen. I do think this is represented very well in, in some of the video adaptions we've seen. Um, Luke 1 has the birth of Jesus 30 years ago, the baptism story, the masses, the public, the words going around. People are aware that this could likely be the Messiah. That's why the Pharisees are showing up. Who is this guy? But instead of coming here to get healed, they're coming here to judge Jesus. And this is the approach some people still have today. They'll come to church, but they're just coming to judge the church. They're not coming because they have a need. They're coming because their friend has has twisted their arm to come to church. And so they're coming and they're making judgment calls about that church. 
But the Pharisees in the Hebrew is a separatist group. The root of that word means to make distinct or to clarify. The goal of the Pharisees, really a group that gets established since Babylon, is that they would never go back to sin like they did that got them exiled to Babylon. So the goal was to always be going around the city and being the example of a set-apart person. So touching a leper would get their attention. That's not being set apart as a people. So they're not mixing with the masses. It says that they're standing by, they're sitting by in verse 17. That's indicative or accurate to the history too, um, that they would be uh, sitting apart from the people. And the power of the Lord was present. It doesn't change the message for the audience or or anything else. And the power of the Lord was present to heal them. The them there is the Pharisees. The power of God is is perfectly able and willing to help these people. But they're not there to help it. Then, then behold, verse 18, men brought on a bed a man who was paralyzed, whom they sought to bring in and lay before him. And when they could not find out they might bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the housetop to let down his bed through the tiling into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said to them, man, your sins are forgiven you. Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? It's interesting. You got these friends bringing their paralyzed friend. Again, this is the guy who wasn't in the hospital. He couldn't get to where Jesus was. And his friends are so sure that Jesus can heal that they bring him there just like the leper. We're going to get you there. Frankly, this is a lesson in great friendship. Going to links for a pal. No question about it. It is also a lesson in what links people will go to to get their butts to church. Right? And this idea of like, they're going to go through a roof to hear from Jesus. And, and, and in our day and age, we have people that are like, well, I don't know. I have to set my alarm clock on a Sunday and do this thing. And you think, wow, these people are going to go out of their way this far to hear from Jesus. And we get like so petty on what keeps us away from hearing the word of God every week. It amazes me. And I think for God, he, we do that in the face of God, and we watch it. So this guy's already on good terms, so are his friends. In the other go- Gospels, I think this story is a focus on the faith of the friends and the paralytic. But Luke sticks it into this, he sticks it in between Peter, leper, paralytic, Matthew. All people getting called, all people getting saved, but very different instructions to each one of them, and very different outcomes for each one of them and Luke puts them all in one kind of section and so I don't know if the fa- the, 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 the idea is that this is going on. first of all Peter helps with the ministry before he has his moment with Jesus the leper is not interrupting anything these people are actually interrupting the teaching of the word this is like people knocking on our window right now or a dog having dreams in the middle of... Like, this is an absolute interruption to the teaching of the word, which is something that's kind of important in this culture. They actually hold it with some reverence. So when they start pulling up, it says tiles here, it's kind of a thatch material. Um, people take this in different ways. I, don't, I just don't think it matters that much. At the end of the day, whatever they're doing to the roof has to get repaired later. Right? So it's not like there's a big, nice, tidy hole in the roof. There, there, is, a, there is an opening that gets made. That's how it reads. So you, I'm thinking while they're doing this, everybody's a little distracted because they're like, we're trying to hear the teaching right now, and you guys are just like making noise up there. 
you know, to the point where somebody, you probably had some people getting pretty irritated. People like me, like, I'm going to go up there and tell them to knock it off. Right? So this would be, this would be something where the entire audience is probably getting a little irritated with these people. Tearing up a roof. Little bits of the thash are likely falling on Jesus as he's trying to teach. Now that would be annoying. Everything about this is annoying. Kind of like leprosy. Kind of like fishing all night and finding nothing. Like there's a negative to this starting off. And he's a paralyzed person. He can't move. Again, Peter was a guy who couldn't find any fish. The leper's a guy who, who in, in medical reasons, can't even be around other people. This guy can't even move. He's just dead in the water. So you got one guy who tries his hardest and gets nothing. You get one guy that's just laced with leprosy and he's outcast by society and gets nothing. And you got a paralytic who can't even move. People come to Jesus in different ways, different positions. And, and in this society, people believed, like leprosy, that par being paralyzed was a sign from God, that it was a determinant of their own sin. So if you're paralyzed, you're not able to work like Peter was. If you're paralyzed and you can't move, you're not even, in some senses, as well off as a leper. A leper can kind of cover up and get some things done with their hands. But in context to the Pharisees that are now sitting by, they hear this thing and they... He saw their faith. How do you see faith? Well, you see faith when it's in action. When people do things because of what they believe, you know what their faith is in. And so they've taken the time, the energy, the deliberation. They're willing to interrupt a sermon of Jesus. Like this is worse than interrupting Jack Hibbs. They're interrupting Jesus himself. But they're willing to do this because they have hope in Jesus. They know Jesus can solve this problem. So he sees their faith. He's not irritated by them. He's not grumpy about it. And he says, man, your sins are forgiven you. I like the word, the, the article man is in there. Um, I don't think it's like a California man, like man. I don't think it's like that. I think it's a, a man as in a title, right? So man, your sins are forgiven you. Making this a, a verse that we can hear because the use of man there could be the generalized like mankind. In other words, human your sins have been forgiven you. It's an interesting thing to say. It would definitely set off the Pharisees. When they say he speaks blasphemies, this idea of forgiving sins, according to Jewish tradition, the law, the Torah, they're absolutely right. So we, they're not misreading the scriptures when they're calling him blasphemous here. What they're misreading is who they're dealing with. If Jesus is just a human, this is blasphemy. If he's God incarnate, this is not blasphemy. And so even though to the letter of the law they're dead right, they are missing, they assume the worst of Jesus and they totally miss the Holy Spirit. And they say, who can forgive sins but God alone? Their reasoning is right, but their spiritual eye is blind as a bat. And humans do this all the time. We do this all the time. Our reasoning is accurate, but our spiritual eye is just blind, and we don't see the situation for what it is. And in this, Satan can get the church to be disunified. We can start to attack each other. Reason without the right premise becomes faulty reason. And so we say, God calls us to reason together, but in the context of God. Intellectualism can be as much as a distraction from God as it can bring you close to God. If intellectualism happens without God in the, in the presence of it, it becomes destructive because you're doing the correct reasoning, but your premises are off. This is part of the problem. This is one of the issues that can happen.
Ben Franklin said, education without a keen awareness of God is not an education. And so we see this, this idea that if all humans are an accident and you believe we are just goo to the zoo to you, then everything you believe about natural science is on a horrible foundation. And you will come to reasonable conclusions, like genocide, but that will not be based, you're spiritualized just blind as a bat because you're on a horrible foundation from the start. That's the problem with the Pharisees. What they're saying is reasonable and true, but they're missing who Jesus is. They don't understand the context. And they've just missed it. If humans evolved, then racism's logical, but it's spiritually dead. If, if of course, you are... Um, looking for freedom of identity, but you don't know your identities in Christ, then the LGBTQ359 thing, that's absolutely reasonable. But it's spiritually dead and blind because they don't understand where identity actually comes from. If you're dealing with God, your identity comes from God, not from your own belief system. If there is no God, you can think whatever you want about your identity and come to faulty but reasonable conclusions. This is the problem with reason alone is it doesn't operate with a premise that's right. So we have this situation, and you have this, this situation where the, the Pharisees don't respond well. Verse 22, But when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered and said to them, Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Again, why are you using your hearts to reason out a situation you don't understand? It's, and, and which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you or rise up and walk? He hasn't healed the leper yet. This is like, or I'm sorry, he hasn't healed the paralytic yet. This is like touching the leper before he's healed them. And he does the same thing here. He hasn't healed the paralytic. He just said your sins are forgiven. Frankly, Jesus dealt with the more important of the issues that that person had. That person needed their sins forgiven more than they needed to not be a paralytic. And so... But that you may know that the Son of Man, Daniel 7, that's a word for Messiah, so that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, go to your house. He doesn't touch the paralytic like he did the, the leper, different approach. He doesn't command him to follow him like Peter or to go to the priests like the leper. He says, go home. The command of this guy is to go home. And he, again, where Peter got lots of fish in his boat and the leper simply was able to come back into the town and the leprosy was gone, this guy's told to go home. A paralytic can't work and earn and provide for their family. But this guy, to be a man, has to go home and take care of his responsibilities. So he's told, go home. Take up your bed and go home. He's not told to follow. So again, Jesus gives a different command after forgiving, after healing. Immediately he rose up before them. He took up what he had been lying on and departed to his own house, glorifying God. And they were all amazed and they glorified God and were filled with fear saying, we've seen strange things today. Yes, that's a strange thing you just saw. Amazing how this works. Three reactions in verse 26. You get people that are amazed by God, but they don't follow him. People that actually bring glory to God, that's the good one. And people that are just scared of God. When people realize there is a God, that doesn't mean they're necessarily going to glorify him. There's other reactions. The Pharisees here are motivated by a contempt of Jesus. They're not coming to hear from Jesus and inquire of Jesus. This is important as we invite people to church. If they're just coming to church looking for flaws... 
I'm going to tell you right now, they're not going to see anything. They're not going to hear anything. They're only embitter themselves more. And just like these Pharisees that got to hear Jesus himself and see a miracle, their hearts don't change and soften. They just harden even more. And it doesn't work the right way. So they, they're critical and they leave with nothing. Even though they just, I would have loved to be at this particular Sunday listening to Jesus. I'd have been one of the annoyed people with the whole roof getting thing and the interruption. But then when that happened, I'd be like, whoa, we just saw something really strange. People say there's stranger things. That's not true. This is the strangest it gets. This is weird. This is something you can't explain. And they walk, the Pharisees walk out of this situation without any response to the Lord. And Jesus sees that. Why are you reasoning? The fact that he reads their minds is reaching out to them in a, in a language they understand. Just like he did with Peter. Just like he did with the leper. Just like he did with the paralytic. And he throws this thing out for these Pharisees by reading their mind. They know their mind. They know Jesus just read their mind. But they don't see the miracle in that. It's not even part of the story, really. And then he says, what's easier, forgiving or saying things? What's easier, your words or your actions? And so in the power of healing the paralytic, he's demonstrating to them that he actually has the power of Messiah. God's power is working through him. And he's trying to show them. This is as much an invitation to these Pharisees as it is to the leper and the paralytic and to Peter. It's in the same collection of stories. Immediately he rose up. There's no, the teaching gets interrupted, but when it comes to the healing, there is no interruption. The word immediately there, bam, instant. Right? It isn't like I got to stretch my unused muscles for since I was born. Right? The muscles are instantly there and he instantly uses them and he gets up. Jesus gives fish to one person. He gives nothing material to the leper or the paralytic, but he does take care of what's getting in the way of them doing any kind of ministry. He takes the roadblocks out of the way. And this is why he, I think he calls it, we're so grateful as humans that he just, he forgives our sins, but there's a reason he forgives our sins. It's because they're a roadblock to doing ministry. So he forgives them and he heals us of the obligation to go. He gives us an alternative to going back to our vomit or go towards something like this. So we can all do this. And I think that's the thing. We all get an invitation to God. People, what is God calling me to? And our right answer as believers is, I don't know, why would God tell me what he's calling you to do? Right? There's no rhyme or reason to how God does this, why he does this, or what he's calling people to do. What we do know from the scriptures is that Peter's called to follow him, the leper's told to go to the priests, the paralytic is told to go home and take care of his family. And so you get very three very different commands, very different situations, but a consistency in that God forgives sin and he calls people to something new tomorrow from what they did yesterday. This is how do you get any better in a religion? Like, we couldn't have come up with this stuff. As humans, we come up with gods that look a lot like us, and they're bitter and mean, and they have rivalries, and they're, they're vengeful. And that's what humans make up when they make up gods. But this god's just entirely different in how he approaches things. And, and it's strange. We don't understand it. The word strange there, by the way, is paradoxus, where we get the word paradox. It doesn't make sense. It's unexpected. It's contrary to an assumption. I assumed this, but the paradox is that this actually happened. We call that cognitive dissonance. Something's not matching here. And there are occasions, I think, in all of our lives where we see things, we hear things that don't make sense. 
Because God's calling us. And God calls us out to those things. I came thinking I would hear a sermon, but what I heard was God filling up my nuts, healing my leprosy, making that paralytic walk. And then he got the Pharisees. They came to a sermon too, but they came with a wrong heart. And they're leaving with exactly what they came with. They get nothing out of this situation. Next, you get a tax collector. I think this next story puts the exclamation point on all of this. After these things, verse 27, he went out and he saw a tax collector named Levi. We called Peter Simon, like Luke's just writing it that way. Um, and it's actually Simon, like Jesus changes his name. Same thing with Matthew. He's called Levi here and not Matthew. Sitting at the tax office and he says to him, follow me. So he left all, he rose up, and he followed him. So we get this fifth situation, if you count the Pharisees. There's no miracle whatsoever. None. No miracle happening. It's a, it's a different kind of thing, but it's the same call. Follow me is what's going to happen here. Follow me. Peter is a tax collector. Uh, we talked about this in the other Gospels we've done. It's a Roman job. It's betrayal of the Jews. It's leeching off the people. The, the tax collectors were outcasts. They weren't allowed to come to synagogue. They were as kicked out of the spiritual life of the Jews as a leper was to the physical life of the Jews. They were, they were laced with everything that you could think of as a Jew that was horrible when it comes to the heart and the spirit. It's a social equivalent of being a leper. It is the life equivalent of being a paralytic. And perhaps the amount of money a tax collector got made things better, but it didn't, right? So here's the other thing, is that if Matthew is the tax collector in this particular town, and somebody just caught a huge load of fish recently, guess where they would go to pay their taxes on that fish? Peter, James, and John would have gone to Matthew, the tax collector, to pay their taxes because they would have to pay a portion of that catch to the Roman Empire. This would have been really hard for Peter, James, and John to see this guy get called too. But Peter doesn't, there's no reflection of Peter at all in this story. And part of that is because Peter had already come to the, his own end and realized, I'll follow Jesus wherever. And if that means a tax collector is coming too, then a tax collector is coming too. So he's named Levi. Levi, by the way, is a common name used amongst Levites, right? So Jesus is calling a Levite to come be his <laughs> follower as a Judean. And so there's, there's that element. Don't miss that piece. And yes, this is Matthew. Matthew 9.9 takes the names and puts them together. So he's a non-Levite rabbi in the order of Melchizedek calling a Levite to serve him. Why is a Levite in a tax collector's office? Because Levites got education. So they got more training as youth because they were being trained for the temple and for the service. They learned to read. They got more school. But then you get some of them that say, I don't want to serve God. I'm going to go serve the Romans and make money. I'm going to get wealthy. And so that made these people even worse, right? The fact that he's a Levi serving in a tax booth. He's taking what God gave him and a privilege. He was supposed to be set aside for service to the Lord, but he's serving the Romans instead. Like this is the this is worse than a leper at some level. And he's sitting at the tax office. He's actually, just like with the fishermen, he's doing work when Jesus finds him. He's just serving in the tax booth. But he, like everybody else, would know who Jesus was. He would know that Jesus was healing. He would have heard the stories. 
Or Jesus meets him while he's working, not after he's working. He hasn't cleaned the nets. and He's in the middle of his dirty business. Follow me. There's no promise to Matthew. There's no miracle. There's no don't be afraid, like he says to Peter. Just an invite, just a chance to learn, to quit his job and become a student. And in that sense, you think, I think Jesus meets Matthew exactly like he met the other three. He met them right where they lived. Matthew's in the middle of all this stuff. And Jesus says, I will have you come into my company, even though nobody else will have you. And so there's various walks of life that people come from to follow Jesus. Various promises and miracles. And I think this one's the most interesting because there's absolutely no miracle involved whatsoever. Just Jesus' reputation alone and somebody saying, come follow me. And for Matthew, that's all he needed was the company and the invitation to come and be with Jesus. Some of us need to work until our fingers are raw and to figure out that we can't do it on our own like Peter. Some people just dive into sin so far that you're so ugly and deformed by sin, you think God would never have me. Some people are just paralyzed. They don't even know how to make a decision. They're just sheepish. They can't even move spiritually. They're like a paralytic. But you got Matthew's just living his life and living it for the world. And, and in, in this sense, you really have kind of a full spectrum of humanity in how God meets people in different places. Not everybody has to get buried in sin and become leprous with it before they come to Jesus. You got some people like Matthew, they're just living corrupt lives. They're living for the world. But God calls them and there's something that stirs in their heart. And that's the miracle itself. So maybe there is a miracle with Matthew. His heart changed. He just did an about face. And I think for a lot of us, when we come to Jesus, that we got to recognize a heart that goes to serve God instead of serving itself, that's a miracle. An absolute change of the human heart to be somebody who says, I'm more about God than about myself. So Matthew just follows. There's no words before or after from this from Jesus. There's Matthew, there's no glorifying, like the, the leper is glorifying the Lord and the paralytic. The fishermen and the tax collector, they follow Jesus. The leper goes to the temple. The paralytic goes home. They all have direction from Jesus as to what to do and where to go. And I think in this sense, the fact that a wealthy person comes, Jesus teaches in other places, it's harder for a, a, a camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to come into the kingdom of God. Yet here we are with Matthew, a rich person, coming into the kingdom of God. It's not impossible. With God, all things are possible. But it's hard. It had to be hard for Matthew to walk away. In his case, he doesn't put away the boats. He just leaves the tax booth with all the money inside, with all this stuff. He just literally walks away. So that's the balance, too. Where the fishermen take care of responsibilities before they walk, Matthew doesn't. He, God calls him and he's, he knows in his heart he needs to run away from that stuff. He doesn't take care of it. It doesn't say he locks the shop up. He just leaves all, verse 28, rose up and followed him. He just walks away from it all. And I think in the, as we're doing things or you got people that come to the kingdom and they know that they're on the wrong path, to just do that about face and absolutely leave because those responsibilities aren't commanded by God. To rip people off as a tax collector is not something God's called him to. So it's not a responsibility that he owes anything to. And so 
You know, it's interesting how different people have different degrees of this when they come into it. Then verse 29, then Levi gave him a great feast in his own house. He actually spends a bunch of money. And there were a great number of tax collectors and others who sat down with them. And their scribes and the Pharisees complained against his disciples, saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Don't you know those people are outcasts? And they're saying this to fishermen, former lepers, former paralytics, former tax collectors. And they're hitting the wrong crowd. <laughs> like, they're tone deaf. Everybody following Jesus is an outcast. Every one of them have rejected the world to follow Jesus. So you're saying, aren't you scared you're being more kind of a Jesus freak? And you just Christians just smile and go, yeah, I'm a Jesus freak. You nailed it. I'm nuts about this stuff. You should come to the feast with me. I love the fact that, that Matthew uses his relationships from a sinful lifestyle and invites them all to meet Jesus. Come on in. There's nobody at the door doing a, a spiritual gifts test, right? There's no like list of attributes you have to have to come to the feast. They're all coming to the feast. It doesn't say they all follow Jesus, but they're all there to hear Jesus. And that's what bugs the Pharisees so much. You have no discernment over who you invite to the kingdom. Nope, we don't, because I got invited, and I'm not going to take that away from anybody else. Well, that person needs to dress right. They need to clean themselves up. They should take a bath. No record of any of that. Matthew throws a feast, and he brings tax collectors. He doesn't bring repentant sinners. He brings people that are living in it to come hear from Jesus. It's a great feast. Even Romans could come and take part of this. It might be that part of what got served at that feast, I like the connections, it might be that part of what got served at that feast was the tax that was collected by Peter, John, and James, and he just served it all up for everybody. That's legit. It's likely fresh fish is better than salted fish, and he might have just served it right back and said, look, the Lord brought all this in. It was not understood by anybody, but I'm going to let use that to serve the Lord, that thing that God already did. And then Levi gave it. He's never asked by Jesus to throw a feast. Everybody else had clear direction from Jesus. This guy has no direction from Jesus. I know there's people in this room when you got saved, God's waiting to tell you what to do. And you're like, well, I, I don't know what to do. God's not told me anything. Well, Feasting is, in the Old Testament, one of the commands of the people of God. They're supposed to feast together. And so Matthew takes it upon himself to do something for the kingdom, and the Lord receives that as a gift. He uses it in the ministry because we're reading about it today. And I think that's interesting. Jesus never told him to throw a feast, yet he did it, and God used it. So if you're doing things that are clearly part of what the people of God already do, and you, nobody has to tell you to do it, that's kind of a blessing too, but it's totally different than the other stories we just got. Now, aren't you confused? You came thinking, I just want to know how Jesus calls people so I can resonate with that. And the answer is, differently. That's how Jesus calls people. And we are not in charge of it. And that's part of what we need to let go of. There's a great number of tax collectors that show up, just like there were a great number of fish ready to go. Pharisees were complaining about all this. It's always the case when you're doing awesome things that there's joyless people that show up and don't like it. And how sad that is. They're against his disciples. I think they're cowards. They're not even going against Jesus at this point. They're going after his followers. If you're working for the kingdom of God, there will be joyless people that don't like what you're doing and why you're doing it. Expect it. 
And when it happens, try to be joyful and invite them to the party. And, and, and it's same. There's, I think the world loves when there's sour, nasty Christians. Like, they're really well accepted by the world. And to be a judgmental Christian fits right into their narrative. To be a joyful, happy Christian that's not, like, offended all the time, I don't think the world knows quite what to do with that kind of Christian. One that's actually filled with the Holy Spirit and moves forward with authority and confidence because they know the Word of God, that's dangerous to the enemy. These Pharisees, they're not only, are they not dangerous to the enemy? They're not, they're actually helping the enemy. You get to verse 31. Jesus answers them. And he says, and I think this is the most joyful answer he could give. He says to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Luke kind of wraps up the sentence with, like, that's the point. That's the moral of the story. Jesus didn't come to call perfect people. He claimed to call all the people you know that aren't following him. The broken people, the messed up people, the laced with sin people, the people that are paralyzed with indecision, doing nothing with their lives. He came to call the rich. He came to call the poor. He came to call people who were working. He came to call people who couldn't work. He came to call all of them, everybody. And that idea of just going out there and inviting people and saying, come on, right? It's like before you go to a doctor, you just say, I know I'm sick, but I'm just waiting to improve. I literally went to a doctor this week and they laughed at me to my face because they said, how long have you had this pain in my shoulder? And I said, oh, about a month. And she laughed at me. This is what people do spiritually. I know I'm sick, but I'm just going to wait for it to fix itself. And then over time, as your rotator cuff continues to tear and get worse and cause more and more pain, at some point, human beings get to the point where they're saying, I'm done waiting for this to improve itself because it's not getting any better. Sometimes that's on a deathbed. Sometimes it's on a cross next to Jesus. Sometimes, praise God, it's young people saying, I just want to live for Jesus. They still have decades that they can give to the kingdom work. It's interesting that in the Gospel of Luke, Dr. Luke, that Jesus uses the word physician here. And Luke remembers that. Or he, he at least gets that in an interview and that's the part he writes down. Because Jesus is even speaking to the author of this book in a language that the author of this book would understand. Just like bringing fish to fishermen and movement to a paralytic, he brings a doctor reference to a doctor. It's like Jesus is reaching off the pages trying to bring Luke into the kingdom too. I love that. What a great thought. I've not come to call the righteous but sinners. Sometimes people get like, if you start coming to this church and like we'll hang out with you, you get Mike Houck, he spends time with you and we're chatting and we're hanging out and we're talking. But then next Sunday you show up and Mike's talking to some new person and you feel kind of hurt because you're like, I thought we were friends. And it's like, but Mike's doing the work of God. He's trying to talk to, he's not, we're not here to save each other, you guys. We're here to save that person that shows up that needs Jesus because we're already feeling the benefits of the kingdom of God. We're seeing parts of our life move towards God and other parts of our di- our life just wither away. And it's good. And we feel better about it. And each week we go by and we hear the word and we're like, I'm getting stronger and healthier and more bold and more confident in my faith. This is good stuff. I like all this. But you get somebody who's five, six years behind you in that journey, those people need the help that you have. They need the encouragement that you got. They need the words that you have. Man, I was just where you were 10 years ago. I know exactly how you feel. 
I'm there and I can't wait to see what happens next. And some are going to react like Peter. Some are going to be disobedient like the leper. Some are going to be grateful and glorify God like the paralytic. Some are just going to ignore and get hateful like the Pharisees. And some like Matthew, they're just going to go right into ministry and start serving the Lord because they're ready to go. Matthew wanted to leave that tax office. He was itching for a reason and all it took was follow me and he was off to the races. There's people like that there too. He calls the righteous, but sinners, what does he call them to? Again, we can't miss this as believers today. He calls people to repentance. We invite the person, we don't invite the sin to come with them. And I think that's a distinction in the church we have to make. We're going to miss the whole thing. We don't agree with sinners, but we accept that human being even if they're in sin. We just say this isn't the place for that. So if a sinner shows up to church and they bring a six-pack with them, we just say, oh, that's real. I see what you're doing there with your heart, but this isn't where we do that. This isn't the place for that. Or worse, you know. Um, healing takes time. Spiritual healing can happen instantly with the power of God. It can take years with the discipleship process. But healing does happen. It still happens today for fishermen, lepers, paralytic, tax collectors, bond salesmen, um, teachers, jewelry salespeople. It still happens, and that, that work still goes. God doesn't need perfect people. I just love verse 32. He doesn't call perfect righteous people. He calls us. What an honor. What an amazing thing. And we can glorify God. We can serve God. We can defend God's name. We can tell others to come and do that. We can still tend to our homes. We can still throw parties. We can still dance in the streets, all pointing people to Jesus Christ and glorifying God, however God's called us to do it. You got something you love to do? I'm guessing God's put that in your heart so you can do it and serve the body of Christ with it. Because he's put that in your heart. He's put it there for a reason. There's no accidents in how that works. So next week we'll get into fasting and wineskins and all that good stuff. This week we got this awesome collection of people following Jesus for the first time. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. I can't wait for the discussion today and, and just what's going on in people's hearts. But Lord, move us towards you. Um, some of us have, have, have stalled and we've had spiritual paralysis. Some of us are still laced with sin. Uh, some of us, like Peter, just fall on our knees and say, man, who am I, Lord? What can I do? How can I serve? And we know we're unclean. Lord, we know your Holy Spirit washes us. And when you've forgiven us, you're not concerned about what happened yesterday. You're concerned about what happens from this second forward. So Lord, help us to commit ourselves to you, that you have a plan for our lives and a purpose for our lives that you've orchestrated since the beginning of time. And Lord, that's so far beyond us. So we just humbly come before you we repent of our sins. We turn away from them and we turn to you. And Lord, we're going to go eat some awesome taco food today. We just pray that we can celebrate and feast in your name and in your honor and in your glory. And Lord, may you just bring a heart to us that we leave here today refreshed, renewed, emboldened. Lord, give us a home with our brothers and sisters in the faith. And may we serve you with all grace and glory. Um, and recognition of who you are and what you've called us to. Help us to follow you. In Jesus' name, amen.
If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.